I, I don't know that they're independent because I think it's like it's kind of like playing the game Monopoly. Like you need to buy the properties and put the hotels on it because that's how the game is played. But it doesn't mean you can't go back and help somebody. The board's infinite, so it's not a, a, a fixed board. So you can go do that and win the game, and then you figure out what the next part is. Meaning it's not another board; it's part of the game. Winning has a responsibility of going back and doing that, but winning gives you the opportunity to do it because if you don't, now where you raise that bar to, maybe for somebody chasing $100 million, and so now they're gonna spend that many more years going after whatever it is, but by managing it each opportunity along the way. So, Welcome to the Freedom Chasers Podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today we have Ryan Finch on, one of my good buddies, a guy who sold over 500 homes and even wrote the book on it, a guy who married a gal that is also doing incredible things, selling hundreds, of, maybe thousands and thousands of homes at this point. They run these brokerages and Ryan's gone into the franchise model. But as always, Ryan, kick us off with what is the craziest real estate experience or transaction you face so far? You know, uh, you know, being out of transactions, I, you know, I, I can think back on that question. And really, the, it's one that stands out to me. I'm out showing a property, and I, it's in our area, it's like a city, so you know, it's everything's pretty close together. But I happen to be asked to go to this house, and I still remember it was this brick ranch, and it's it's a vacant house, and these people need to buy a house. I got to go pick up my daughter, and I'm like, all right, I got to do it. Well, I get there, and I open the lockbox, and no key is there. And I mean, I'm sure, you know, you've seen that before or whatever you call the agent, you know, and you're going back and forth on all this other stuff. And so long story short, we search and walk around the house. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, you know, we're checking out the house. I'm kind of just still showing it, but I need that sale to kind of go through. And so I don't want to give up. And so I, I think about it, I said, let me see if I can find a window. Right. And so I was probably 25 or so at that point in time and had a suit on, you know, a nice dress suit. And, um, I go around and we're checking, we check all the doors, everything. I get around and there's this kitchen window, One, but it's not, you know, it's not a regular window. It's a small window and it happens to be unlocked. So I pushed it and the guy's giving me a boost up there because he wants to see the house in my suit, scraping up all over the bricks. I still remember these red bricks. And then, and then I, I fall in and then I'm going into the sink, climbing in to go in, to go all the way around and unlock the door. So that was, uh, it was an interesting <laughs> time and just going after it and the grit to, to push through it, I'll just never forget it. I love it. Love it. Is the suit still intact, or uh, did that? Was uh, that I've the last day? That suit. I, I haven't really worn it in a long time. But yeah, no, the suit didn't get messed up. Love it. Well, you're in a t-shirt right now, which is you know, there's a lot of talk about. Oh, should I dress up in a suit? You know, Steve Jobs wore a t-shirt, etc. Talk to us about like, give us a fast forward. Where are you at now? You know, you were wearing suits, slinging houses, but but now obviously you're in the franchise model. Get us up to speed. So that suit was borrowed, actually. Well, it wasn't even borrowed. It was given to me as a gift. So my dad was a mortgage. My dad's friend was a mortgage guy, and he gave me two suits when I got into real estate. And they were they were like too big. If you can just picture the, a person in non-tailored suits, like they were bagging the legs, you know. And so I probably could fit them better now. Um, but but so he he gave me those, and you know I always wore a suit uh, or at a minimum khaki pants when I was selling and, and interacting with with people. Um, and, and I was like ruled no jeans. I never wore jeans. I mean, it was years, years later before, before I would do that. And so, um, because you had to have that first impression with everybody, you know, and then I, as I've trained, um, uh, what is it, uh, progressed through business and stuff, I've kind of gotten to the other side of it. I almost don't trust people in a suit. 
people in a suit. And I don't know if I'm normal, if that's the normal thing, but it's like they're trying to show something or, you know, do something. Now, I know, and somebody told me a long time ago, like when you go over to somebody's dinner's house, somebody's house for dinner, you need to dress nice because you're honoring them with what you're wearing, right? And so so that's always stood out to me. And at the same time, you know, I think of it even, and believe it or not, I did think of whether I should wear a coat or, you know, what I should do for this. Uh, it's our first warm day here in Virginia Beach. Um, and, and I said, you know, I don't want to do that. I'd rather be more relatable to the people we're talking to than I want to stand out as like some business guy or whatever. I want to be like, look, I, I've done it. I've been through whatever they're going through. I've done it. I've seen it. I've had to push through it and, and all that. Because if not, it alienates to the point where they can't hear me. They think that I, I'm sitting in some office somewhere, which you can see this temporary office space uh, that's set up here, and, and that I don't understand what it's like anymore. And so, you know, the principles and things don't change from the way I started in the business to where it is today, how you grind, push through the grit and all the things it takes to succeed they don't change. And at the same time, you can do it in a shirt or in a suit. Yeah. And people who see your success today with all the franchises, with all the sales that you've done, the money that you've made, might assume that your beginnings were crazy easy. You were on a silver spoon. Obviously not the case. Tell our listeners, like, what was life like for you as a young person? And how did that lead you to where you're at today? So I ended up at 18, I was homeless and I didn't have any money. So uh, I, I ended up living with my aunt for a little bit. And I, I started working as a plumber with my granddad for $7 an hour. So that was essentially where I started as soon as I graduated high school. So there was no college after that. We did an apprenticeship school through that. I got through that part of it. And, uh, and then it was like, all right, I'm, you know, making about 40,000 and then I go through a divorce. So it's like, it always feels like it's like cycles up and down. So I, you know, I thought I was doing good. I bought a couple houses along the way, the market went up and I realized I made more money in the houses than I did in, in working. So anyway, go through a divorce, have, um, uh, and, and I'm married now, I've been married now for 14 years, but, uh, previously had a, had a, uh, a daughter, I went through a divorce. We ended up, uh, I moved homes, quit my job as a plumber, jumped straight into real estate. And my daughter was three years old, but mainly because I knew that I couldn't work construction and go in and um, pick her up and do all the stuff I needed to do. I wouldn't be at school functions. I wanted the flexibility of real estate. And everyone thought I was crazy because they're like, you're a single parent quitting your paid job to go jump into sales in 2006. So, so you're homeless at 18. And right. then shortly after that, you get in the plumbing field, you get married, have a daughter, go through a divorce. Like walk us through like what parts, like w were there lessons to be learned from being homeless that have helped you um, in business today? Well, you find out who you can count on. Right. And so, you know, my, my aunt took me in, she was married and had a kid. And so I've been able to kind of return that favor recently to her, which she didn't do it then for that. But I kind of, um, you know, kind of ended up working out something for her that way. But, um, you know, you're going to find out who, uh, who you can count on. There were ways to, to save up money because I ended up buying a house at 19. So I went from homeless to buying a house, but that was part of the lesson is I wanted something no one could take from me. I wanted to build a business no one could take. I wanted to have a home no one could take. I wanted stability. So an unstable life drove me to wanting stability. And so all of the things I do now are really, I won't change it. I won't chase the next thing or whatever it is because I want stability more than I want to chase something. What was Ryan like as a kid? Were you like high energy class clown? Were you serious? Oh God, man. 
I was like the biggest dork that there ever was. Like, I mean, I just, I didn't know who I was. I didn't communicate well. I wasn't raised real well. I mean, I grew up in an apartment that's like, like the size of our living room now. So, so it's like the, um, the, the person I was, was annoying and not understanding, really bad communicated, misunderstood. Um, and, and really I was, I was dumb. And, and I say that because it was not till later where I started to take things seriously and start reading and growing and developing into somebody else. And then, then mentors came along to help me kind of mentor, communicate more effectively and clearly, you know, be empathetic, you know, how to win friends and influence people came in to like take an interest in them. And, you know, all of those things were mind shifts for me, um, you know, that went on that, that really transformed. But in the beginning, I mean, I had a couple friends that, that you know, God bless them that I, I can't figure out how they stayed friends with me as long as they have now. Like, I mean, I have lifelong friends that they're still friends with me today. Um, and I don't know how they put up with me then. Uh, and at the same time, it, if you were like looking back at the most likely to not succeed in life, it was me, you know, the bad infrastructure, the, the no support, you know, uh, the support system was thin and then, uh, having the, you know, um, no tools or, or skill set or no real talent whatsoever. So, um, you know, I was, I was very fortunate. So do you believe that you were dumb because it was hard to learn things or because you were purposely not learning to try and fit into the social landscape? I think I didn't see the value in the education. So like if I was in class or something like that, I didn't see it as a value to go learn English or whatever it was. It didn't, it, I didn't see the long-term value of what that was. And so that was a part of it. Other was distracted and things that didn't really matter. And, and I don't know, maybe it was stuff that was said along the way, but it was just kind of like, um, I, education was like a um, process to me. It was like a business. It was like a, it was like a, same thing everybody is like a conveyor belt if you will of life and and i didn't like that um from the beginning and i wanted to have the most out of it but it's not like i was thinking some grand scale i just simply just didn't conform and uh and i paid the consequence because i didn't meet what they wanted but at the same time in that same category i was making more money than anybody in school well because <laughs> i uh because I was taking bubble gum and buying it at 88 cents and selling it for $2. So I was making three or $400 a week while I was in school. So that taught me a lot to basically say you can work and learn at the same time. What do you think drove you to be so entrepreneurial so young? I don't know, either not having stuff or just learning the concepts of business. You know, a buddy of mine were just talking about this. He's like, man, I don't have anybody I can really talk to business-wise. And he's teaching his son something. And he says, he teaches his son, he says, hey, I want you to, you know, what could you do for business? So he goes door to door and asks people, I'll take your trash cans out for a dollar and a dollar a week and I'll take your trash can out. And, um, and then his dad gets him to the next level and says, well, what you could do is even split that with a friend and then have them doing it. So you go get the business and then go do it. So you can start building those layers into that business and that entrepreneur side. And once you get bit by the bug of thinking that way, it kind of just goes and goes and goes. And it just becomes fun. It's like artwork, you know, to, to keep growing and building something, you know? So I don't know. I just like that. So you've always liked the entrepreneurial path. And you, come, you came from a life where there wasn't a lot of money. And you mentioned that, obviously, being homeless. You just wanted something to latch on to, to have that's yours. Obviously, fast forward to today, you have a lot of things that are secure and a lot of things that are incredible. Like, do you feel like you're still fueled by the same things that fueled you when you were young? 
No, no, and it's really it's um it's really disheartening because because what's happened now in the transition is I mean at one point I was the number one team here locally multiple years in a row as number one agent number one number seven team in the Wall Street Journal number one Remax agent in the country and all of that was great you know it was all this chase for for going to go do that and I don't know if that was not having like my biological in life that I wanted to impress somebody or something but once you get to a level of it you're like it's just paper. It's just, it's just money. It doesn't change anything. And so once you have enough, now you have to go back and live a life of impact. And now you're basically giving your life away. So you go from trying to gain and chase to going back and giving it back to everyone else. And, and, and when I say disheartening is because I go, that means everything you did up until here, if I had taken 60 years, that would have sucked to figure that out that long. And it sucks that I, passed up, you know, on a dinner conversation and said, I picked up the phone, right? Or whatever that was. And I, I'm still somewhat guilty to that sometimes now, but it's almost inverse. It's because someone needs me that I'm answering, not because I'm doing some deal or something like that. Right. And so, so, um, so anyway, it would have been bad if I wasted that much time figuring that out. And at the same time, now you can go to this level. And the problem is, is everyone that's out looking for the chase, thinks everything you're offering is part of a chase. Does that make sense? So they're, they're somewhat standoffish, so which means you don't get a level of impact with them because they won't engage. And if they don't engage, you have no way to help them. And so they stay on the same thing. And or if you're trying to have a conversation with somebody about it and they're like, wait, I can't put food on the table, you're, you're gonna have a disconnect, right? Because they, they're not gonna hear you about giving back when they need to feed their family, right? So, so you know, understanding that is, is a good thing. And the disheartening part is like not being able to help enough people or not not communicating it in a way that they can see that there's more to this that they can do. Because if they get successful, they can then be turning that next page of giving back, but they can't see that because they're just trying to feed their family right now, right? Or they're just, they think one more dollar is gonna be enough and they go get it and they blow it and then they wanna do it to go impress somebody else. And so, you know, it's just this downward spiral that they chase and, and it's just, it's, yeah, it's disheartening. And and I want to disrupt it. I want to change it. I call it setting captives free. You know, I look at it as how do I get people free from the things that they think are legit and that, that they think are right, that there's so much freedom that's out there. And they're going, no, you have it. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm setting it up for you too. The principles didn't change. You can do it too. Oh, I want to go so deep into this. For you, was it an epiphany? Was it a moment? Was it a decision? The, the when what is enough like you had a switch yeah. from i'm driving for achievement i'm driving for money to i'm going for impact what was it a moment was it a decision you know i don't know if it happened over time but see i'm a big thinker so like i get up in the morning and and i'd say i'm a big thinker and i plan and i vision things out because i i want to i schedule my meetings and what am i going to say and different things like that uh for the day and i do that every morning you know and so um, I, I do that, but I think just gradually over time that kind of took place and I just, you know, decide what do I want my life to look like? And when you, when you figure out what you want it to look like to what it is, you're going, okay, well, what is it? One more business, one more office, one more thing, which once you get the concept of real entrepreneurship, and, and this is the, uh, this is the real crux of it is, uh, people are so busy being self-employed that they think they're business owners. But a business owner can go away and it keeps on going and going. But when you get to that freedom where a business is going, I buy Apple stock. I'm not going in to see how the operation goes. I buy it based on you know the economics of it. If I'm running a business, the right people, the right economics, that stuff is going on. And I'll do that over and over again. I won't go into a job 
And so, so again, that comes in as part of deciding what you want your life to look like. So now you're just at some point making money, make money, right? You're chasing, uh, you're chasing money, you get money. If you don't spend it all, then you can make money, make money. And then it becomes enough to live your lifestyle. If you pay off your house, pay off your car, you don't get too far indebted, then you can, um, then you can have that peace of mind. So when you lay your head down, you're, re you know, you're, you're relaxed, but I'll tell you, there's a problem. If everybody else around you has to go to work every day, you're not going to be able to hang out and do that. And at the same time, when you're an entrepreneur, you're not going to sit around and do nothing either. You want to go again, have that life of impact, have purpose. And so, yeah, I, to answer your question, I don't know how or when it took place. I just, I just remembered it started with the emotion of anger, like mm -hmm. mad that I was duped, that I fell for this, that I went for this and disappointed that I thought I would reach a level and I would be happy, if you will, which I, I was always kind of happy. I was so stupid. I thought I was winning all the way along. Maybe even I'm so dumb now that I think I, I'm winning now, but there's more to come. And so, you know, just defining what winning looks like as that changes over either maturing or life uh, or mentors that help guide you, then, you know, then you'll, you'll get more clarity. So you feel duped, angry that you didn't find impact earlier. Now, it may seem obvious to some, but I'd like to dive into why, why is impact so much better than chasing money? Oh, you know, I, I, I don't know that they're independent because I think it's like, it's kind of like playing the game Monopoly. Like you need to buy the properties and put the hotels on it because that's how the game is played. But it doesn't mean you can't go back and help somebody. The board's infinite. So it's not a, a, a fixed board. So you can go do that and win the game. And then you figure out what the next part is, meaning it's not another board. It's part of the game. Winning has a responsibility of going back and doing that, but winning gives you the opportunity to do it because if you don't, now where you raise that bar to, maybe for somebody it's chasing $100 million, and so now they're going to spend that many more years going after whatever it is, but by managing it each opportunity along the way. So it wasn't that I didn't have impact before, but I was either restricted by time uh, or finances or mindset. So one of those three things, I couldn't think about helping you because I was so focused on helping me. I couldn't help you monetarily because I didn't have enough money to, to necessarily spare whatever was going on, or I didn't have time because I was chasing getting other money or, you know, or running another play. And so the faster you can get through running that, the faster you can put your mind and focus on helping other people. So what I'm sensing from you is the shift into impact. In, in other words, a shift into being more charitable has not only given you a joy from helping people, but it's probably propelled your business even faster. Is that kind of the right? The yeah, right? yeah, and it, it comes with somewhat of a double-edged sword as well, because you know if you're doing business and stuff like that. So let's say you own a rental property and you want to be charitable, and the tenant can't pay the rent. So do you just let them live there for free? I mean, and so at some point, you know, you're trying to run that line of saying, okay, we got to do what we agree. We got to be in this business side. And at the same time, yeah, but then it's like, all right, I'm taking their rent and giving it away to, to somebody else. And so, you know, it just depends on, um, you know, what that need is. So it, again, it's a dance that you're doing as well. And one day you're in this, this feeling and then the next year in, in another. So, you know, just trying to navigate through that. And you're a person of faith. Like how has your faith impacted this equation you know i i do think about that a lot and you know there's a certain amount of people that i think have uh have the same faith but they don't have the same results right like they and maybe they have even more faith right or they you know they believe in something 
and they have actions that follow, but it just didn't work out how it was supposed to. And so, you know, I feel that I'm fortunate that things have gone that way. And at the same time, uh, I've looked at it as a twofold uh, core that really came together for me, which was um, I used God as a resource to help give me clarity in that vision and purpose, right? So instead of just kind of going through the motions and whatever, too much of the duped part was when I was going my own way, going after, you know, my own, my own agenda, right? And so once you get into learning, you have a infinite resource of information it's trying to get information people say how do you know that and i'm like i don't know because it's not about knowing there's so much information out there it's more so how is how are my eyes of blindness removed so i could see right because somebody's gonna be listening to this going no 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 yeah 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 they're not listening to that because they can't see it yet and that's okay but so for me i've been fortunate that i was able to see things and knowing that i say it humbly meaning i i know that there's things i can't see yet as well like i don't know what I don't know yet, but I'm hoping and praying that I'll, I'll be able to, to have more clarity. And the second thing uh, is, is really uh, if if your lifestyle inside uh, and outside are different, then it eventually will impact your business and your life. Right. And so trying to keep those things aligned is is like you can go to church and smile and wave and, you know, whatnot and then turn around and 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 make poor life decisions. And you can manage it. I mean, it's manageable to make poor life decisions and, and do that. But what will end up happening is it blocks that clarity. So you'll lose the ability for that resource. And then it like, it catches up. And so it's like, not like I'm against drinking. I may go out, we can go out and have a couple of drinks tonight. No big deal. Right. But so, but so at the same time, I know tomorrow I won't be as sharp as I would if I hadn't. Right. So you just take that implication to all the biblical things. If you follow some biblical principles, then they lead to biblical results. It's like laws. And so, so I've seen that. And at the same time, I can see where that works inversely as well. Um, and, and I don't look at it like in a judgment standpoint, I look at it as unfortunate because that thing has them and it shoot, even the thing we're talking about with money, you know, you know, I did that podcast with, with, with Jordan and, uh, and, and Jordan Belfort was like all about chasing money. And then he would go spend it and just go make more. And I realized he was blind. He'd have to stay on that chase forever because he's just used to that same grind. But if he got clarity, he would say, wait, I can get a certain amount of money, making a certain amount of rate of return and live off of the return. And I don't have to go get it anymore. Right. And so, so again, that's just a clarity, but I think life has taken him in a different direction. I think he's, I, I'm proud of him. I, you know, I'm proud that he's, you know, redeemed and, and, you know, coming back. And again, I don't judge any, you know, anything anybody's done. It's something he's done maybe more public than, than, you know, than me, you know, saying a cuss word or, you know, something like that. But the, um, you know, that's just the, the, the crux of it. So let's dive into your success. So you become a plumber, you get into real estate, you start going that route. I mean, you took off like a rocket after that. What was it like, you know, building your, your real estate business, your team? So, you know, it, it may seem like that uh, it took off, but uh, it was definitely not a take. Like I, when you said that, I, I was looking behind me. I thought you were talking to somebody else. Like, <laughs> it, it, it may have looked like that, but it was definitely not like that. It did take off in the first couple months. It took off, but then I ran into the blender of 2007 and eight, right? And so, so it quickly went up and it quickly went down and I blew every dollar I had. So I was broke again. So I went and made more. I made three or four times the amount of money I made what I was doing before, but then I blew it all and went and got in debt. So now I owed back money. So that was a great learning curve for me to go through, but then I had to go through it again, but got fortunate, got into the Fannie Mae stuff, and then that took off. Well, then 
that changed because they said, we don't want you in every office. So then it brought me back down again. Right. And so then we go and we open our own company, our own office, but I'm buying a big building and I'm spending expenses. Like I'm some big company when I have small little revenues. And so I, I didn't stay close to the numbers. I didn't know what was going on. So I blew it again. And so then I finally got it up and I don't know, it's maybe 2015 or 16. It's finally going all well. And I'm like, great. And then the mentor helps me get set up to scale it. So now we scale it, but now I'm spending it on offices and employees and scaling 12,000 square foot resource center and all that build out, all the technology, 32 employees. I mean, all of that, I was losing 50 grand a month. This was just in 2018, right? This is, and then I'm like, all right, finally I dig out of that. I fix all my own mess. And then, um, <clears throat> and then we get to 2020 and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just finally getting out of this. And now this happened and everybody's got to work from home. So, so that goes on. Right. And so, but that was then the pivotal point where we led from where we're starting franchising. We, you know, I left real estate business and jumped into franchising. Essentially what happens is it's a completely different business and I had to learn it and I didn't know anything about it. So, so we get that going, we build that team around that and we're growing that. And so that comes in 2020, 2021 and that's when everything it's only 2023 so for me the growth has only been the last two or three years um for what has really grown a real business a real model you know something valuable amazing people coming in because now we went from local to national so now you got national talent involved in the growth and and, and what's going on and so that's been that's been the the hockey stick if you will of, of growth that i've seen how much more, if any, do you enjoy the franchise business as opposed to being a real estate agent? Um, all right. So, so there's a trade-off and no, nobody seems to understand this. And I don't, um, I'm trying to pick my words carefully. So, so I have a saying that goes on in my head over and over and over again. All right. And I don't, you may have heard me say it. I don't, I don't know if I even said it already, but, um, your job is to not have a job, right? And and for me, I couldn't figure out how to do that as a real estate agent. Now, it doesn't matter. You can pay 100% commission with a transaction fee. You still have a job because if you're not doing it, you, it doesn't make money, right? So I knew that wasn't for me long-term. I And I, I'm i crazy. I think about going back and man, I can go sell a million dollar house, make 30 grand just like that and not have to deal with anything, right? So, but then I would be back to where I was, where, where I'm looking at this, right? And so, and I know that's probably not, advantageous for the audience because they're they're in that level but I, i'm saying that to set this up the next level of that is running a team or a real estate office our business model is set up where you're running a team it's better to run with us than it is to run under a brokerage in most cases because then you own your own company but so what i realized in running an office is i was getting the profit of an office and i was building a sellable product so now i have because of the revenue of it i didn't have to have a job i could fill someone in but if i did it instead of paying somebody else I kind of could grow it faster and and didn't have the expense so i made it more profitable by doing that right and so so i liked that and i know that was part of your question is getting into that i liked that but what i um what i what i like more about the franchise side of it is um and there's pros and cons of both i was in control when i run an office i'm in control i pick who comes on i pick where what i do with the money how i manage all that and you can make a lot i can make a lot as a real estate agent i can make a lot as a brokerage uh, the, the difference in that though is in jumping to the franchise side was I'm dependent on everyone else. So if they don't recruit, if they don't get transactions, if they don't run it, I, I, my income is, 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 um, is hindered. Right. And at the same time, um, 
you know, you're coaching and helping them for a small amount of money in the beginning because you're betting on on their growth. You're I'm betting on them to grow. So if they don't grow, I spent the same amount of time with the same one, and then it didn't it didn't grow. Um, but it's but it's really rewarding when they go and grow because they only pay back that small amount that they you're it's rewarding because they're now scaling and growing, and that's hugely valuable for me because then they add momentum. They start adding mortgage and title and they start adding employees. And so it's like they infuse capital into running their businesses. And what my hope is that they get to a place where their job is to not have a job. And so for me, the franchise side is rewarding because we're giving them a plug and play and a coaching to not have a job. And at the same time, I liked being in the other side because then I didn't have to be dependent on somebody else. I could always step in and run and it was it was no big deal. So there's, there's pros and cons kind of to both sides of it. Um, you know, you can't push someone to grow a business at a small number as fast as you'd like to do it. Right. And so so but if you're running a real estate office, I could say, hey, Matt, come on, 50 50, I'll give you the leads. And now I could grow and scale that really, really fast and have more control. But we have a saying you can have growth or you can have control, but you can't have both, which I stole <laughs> from Craig Rochelle. So nice. And so essentially the game then becomes recruiting more. So you have that broad swath of, you know, franchises where many of them hopefully will grow really really quickly the some that don't don't you don't feel the impact of that as much yeah yeah i mean you you want it for all of them but everyone you know kind of goes in it's like if i told you a stock was a great stock play and you put a dollar into it well your win is only going to be based on what you put in if i put a hundred dollars in then and it goes up 10 percent, we equally get what we put into it and it works the same way in a real estate offices some people are not willing and able to put in that same effort or that risk tolerance, like, hey, if they got to be dependent on an agent to sell and them not selling, that's scary, right? That can that can feel scary. So then for them, they need to push to growing more and more people. And if they don't do that, they're actually in a more risky space. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, Many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us and let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. Totally. Well, and I know there's a lot of people that go from being an agent to a team leader and go up. Oh, I'm not good at this, or this is not for me, or they go from agent to broker, same thing. What have you noticed is maybe the personality type or the mindset that makes somebody a great broker? Well, I'll, I'll turn that question back around. What makes an agent a good agent? If you're going to hire an agent on your team, how do you know one's going to be better than the other? I mean, usually you don't know, but if you had exactly. to form it, yeah. 
Yeah. So that's and that's the same thing. You can't you can't you can't know, but there are some telltale signs. Do they have great? Do they have track record of success? You know, will are they coachable? Will they follow instructions? You know, and so is pride leading them? And sometimes pride is a good thing because it helps them be more courageous and going after it because they have confidence. And it's sometimes it's like you know you can't get them to get out of their own way, right? But that's but that becomes business no matter what. And what happens is what you're talking about is going from a level of of I'm dependent on me and I can control what I do. If I don't get out of bed this morning, then I don't get to eat. But if they don't get out of bed this morning, then I don't get to eat is a whole different uh, muscle. And some people do it by motivation. You know, hey, you know, yada, yada. You know, if you go do this, you'll get this, you know, or whatever your motivational thing. But really most want to do it by inspiration, right? And so so that's that's what you're doing in a leadership is holding people accountable. Nobody likes that anymore. People don't like it anymore. And people are like, I don't want to hold you accountable if you don't want to be accountable, right? And so that has been a big thing that I've seen uh, going on. And at the same time, it's a profession. And when people learn to treat professionals like professionals, you see those results. Like if I went to go coach little Johnny's baseball team and they're 12, I'm going to say some certain things, bring your bag, you know, pack your lunch, you know, whatever it is. If I go coach the pros, that's the least of my conversation. We're not even talking about that, right? And so when you treat the high level people like that, they don't need the micromanaging. And so learning how to treat people in the level of where they are. If, if you're dealing with somebody that doesn't know how to write a contract or show properties and stuff, you gotta be more detail orientated. When it gets to somebody that's at a higher level and has track record of it, you're trying to incrementally grow them again. It should be a different coaching plane. And that can be fun. What are the types of conversations that you're having with the brokerage owners? Um, mostly it's about attraction, right? So what happens is all of this is about sales. I love the art of sales, right? There's a, there's an art, you know, you've seen like the takeaway and you know, there's all different things that are, that are different strategies. And so for me, I've always worked on two main levels of, of sales. And so it didn't matter whether it was real estate or, or coaching an agent greed, everybody is coming to me for money. They're not coming because they like my personality, not because they want to hang out. They only want whatever knowledge I can give them that will help them make more money. And so, and I learned this early on because I bought houses, it made money. So they came in, they're a doctor, a lawyer, they've got money. They don't know anything about how to buy a house or flip it or any of that, which is common to us, right? But it's not to them. So they came in to do that. And I got a commission every time they would buy and sell, which I was fine with. And that was our, that was our business arrangement. So they came in for that model. And so now you move it over to the other side is now they want to attract agents. They want to grow an office. They want to attract agents. Well, they're starting from scratch. They have nothing to offer. So they lower down their value of what it is. And it's this race to the bottom. But by adding more value and keeping it, now you've got a, a, a fast scaling business. So what I have to do is continually remind them of the values. You know, people run a real estate team or an office. You almost feel like you got to come up with a new bell and whistle, right? It's, it's a continual chase to find the new big thing. And that sale becomes what you're selling. That If you use this CRM, you're going to sell X amount of houses. If, if, if you make these calls, you're going to get X amount. So you're, I'm sorry. If you're selling them on this stuff, that's sales because they believe that whatever it is, it's going to grow and, and it's going to work. For us, it's the other way is that we're now providing services to them that they then get to sell to the agent. Does that make sense? And so there's like a booklet and it'll show everything that's offered. So my coaching with them is really getting them out of, they're doing marketing and saying, hey, if you're looking to buy in this zip code, right? They're running an ad for this, or hey, look at my new listing. I'm like, 
No, no, your customer changed. The agent's job is buyer and seller. Your job is agents. So what are your values to the agent? And that needs to go on. And so we talk about it like there's 13 values that we give to a franchisee that they offer to agents, but they forget. They get out there, they get, you know, they get almost punch drunk. Like they're dealing with P&Ls and they're dealing with a, a fire of some brokers coming in. They got some event going on. They, you know, their, their admin's out sick today. They got to deal with business stuff and business is business. But then they forget about all the good things. So my job really just comes back and it's almost the same conversation over and over again. Well, you got the swag store. You've got the technology. They got a website. How do you get your agents putting automation into the CRM? How, do a training on that. How do you get them calling FISBOs or expires? How can you get new leads? Well, you know, use BombBomb. Whatever it is that they're going to do that they can jump in and get some momentum going. What are the methods that are really working? Like, I mean, you guys have, I mean, I think I saw a post from you about David Casey, like going from two agents to a hundred really, really quickly. What are some of the, the methods that are really hitting home right now? Um, culture, culture is key, right? And so everyone's lost culture with the, the virtual side of the business in which I'm, I'm all for it. You can save money and then bring them in, you know, by if you got to charge rent, then that's going to come out of the agent's commission. So by not having, there's a value in that, right? Some people are not having an office and still charging the agent commission, which is a whole other um, uh, ball of wax. But so the, the ideal of culture is really like setting up training events, being that dynamic leader, you got to go in and map it out. You got to go in the lab with a pen and a pad and figure out what it is you're going to deliver as value. And when you get that, you don't have to recreate it over and over again. You just got to re-say it over and over until they get it. And and uh, it reminds me of a story, but that's, that's really what they've done, whether that's doing events, bringing people, and then doing a good job of, of publicizing what they're doing so that they realize people are in other places and they're lonely. They're coming into a real estate office because they don't want to be alone. They can get energy, and that energy is done through culture, President's Club, top producer events, happy hours, call nights. I mean, all of that is what we reiterate over and over. And so they're finding that success because they're running that play, but running that play quietly doesn't do you as much value as doing it publicly, and they've done a really good job of running that publicly. But what I was going to say, there's a story, and, I, and this is um, – uh, hopefully it, it makes sense, but in communicating in any type of leadership, whatever it is, getting people to go in and do things. I, I remember this story. I was coaching the little league team, my son's baseball team. And I told every player pitcher was off. Don't swing until you get a strike. All right. So that way, if he just walks you with four straight balls, no big deal. Right. And so if he throws you a strike, then at least you can look at the next one, see where you're at. Maybe get a hitter's pitch you know, or a hitter's count. So now he's three, one, and he's pitching you one over, you know, over the middle and we're, you know, we're going to be good. So I tell that to the kid and he goes up there. Very first pitch, he swings at it and he grounds out back to um, to the pitcher. And he's coming back, you know, a little trot back from first base. You can picture him just kind of downcast of getting out. And he goes over and I said, what, what, what's wrong with you? Why, why did you not listen to what I said? I, I can't trust you if you're not running the play. That's really selfish of you to do this. And I'm really coming down on him pretty hard, you know, to, to reiterate, you know, we got to follow the play. And this is what happens when you don't follow the play, right? And so – and. That would seem to be enough. But then he turns around and he looks at me and he said, uh, I said, well, I said, I told you not to swing to get a strike. And he looked at me and just these little kid eyes and he says, but it was a strike. And and it, it, it sunk me because I went, oh, he thought I meant don't swing at a ball, only swing at a strike. And what I meant is don't swing until you have a strike on you. It wasn't his fault. It was my fault. Because I communicated it, but he didn't understand, and I didn't make sure. 
And that is a huge leadership problem that we have because everyone's mad at the little guy for not doing what they were told to do because you told them in a language that they didn't understand. And that was your job was to make sure they understood. So by doing that is David and Ryan who, who run those two offices, they do a good job of asking the questions. They do a good job of running the play to figure it out because you, you can hear the words, but until you're really running the play, it just doesn't have the same liveliness. And then what they're really good at is putting their own flavor or their own spin on it. So they will do it their way, the concept, and then it's there so they own it and they like owning it. They like it that they're doing it this way, this marketing, this event, whatever it is they're doing. It. And at the same time, they have that success. A hundred agents, two offices, or what, it's probably more than that now, but, um, but they have that success but nobody's broadcasting all the things they did that didn't work, right? So they implemented. We did coaching calls every single week, and, and they would go in, and they would go run the play, and they would do different things, and they would think I was telling them, you know, don't swing until you get a strike, and it was a strike, and they would, they would swing at it, right? And so they made mistakes not understanding, but we would each week go back and reiterate, hey, here's what we're doing. Oh, this is what I thought. So as they got clearer and clearer on their vision, their success just took off more and more. Love it. You and Chantel, your wife, both have real estate, you know, now obviously you're on the franchise side. She builds amazing teams and has other businesses. What has it been like being such a power couple? Like, what have you learned from her? What has she learned from you? You know, we've gone through these weird cycles, you know, because we've been married 14 years. And so, you know, the, the pinnacle of it, she was kind of up here and I was down here, you know. And so then as the, the Fannie Mae thing took off, I kind of took up up here. And then that came down and she went. And so we're always... um disrupting ourselves. We're always watching the market of what's going on. And at the same time, we don't even always agree. We're in the same industry, in the same household, in the same market, and we don't agree, right? And so, and it's it's challenging, you know, in some aspects because, you know, you're married and you want what's best for your spouse and you see something a little clear. But she's had to do that to me before. Ryan, you're not making any money right now. Go sell a freaking house. No, I don't want to go sell a house, blah, blah. And I go sell a house and I can make money and then I could get back at, at going at it again. You know, and it's been the other side. Shane, you're, you're doing this other thing. You're disrupting. How's that going to impact this other? I don't know, but this is where the market's going. So she kind of goes that other way. You know, she, she stayed with Chantel Ray when I left my team name and went to first class, right? And then she's moved over to Canzel because, you know, nationally. So we get clearer and clearer as we go on. So there's a lot of value. I really probably would not be where I am now without her guidance. You know, she's con continually giving me more and more information. And then I process it and use it in different ways and different things. Um, and it's funny, I, you know, I feel like I've done well at this point. Um, but there, there's, um, there's a part of me that says if I if I hadn't done well, I'd have blamed her. You know, like it right. had been her fault if I didn't do well, and I'm doing well, and um, and and now I know it's because she's she's added that other value, but we didn't know that at the time. Does that make sense? Like you got to trust somebody has your best interest and is giving you the right information, and and if it turns out well, it's great. If it if it doesn't, it wouldn't have been on her. But you know, that's that is what it is. So. Balance is something that's very important to you, which is interesting because in our culture right now um, in business everybody's throwing shade against balance, but you know, there's a lot of people like they'll, they'll talk about integration, not balance, right? There's a lot, a lot of speakers out there. I mean, there's obviously a, a fair number that are pitching balance too, but one, what is balance to you? And then two, how do you create it when both you and your spouse are hard charging, very successful business people? Yeah, but see, remember, I don't have a job, 
So, so for me, the challenge is really that she is a hard charger. She is a go getter. She's up like, well, I mean, like this morning we went for a walk together. Like we, that's what we like. We spend a good amount of time down and doing that. And at the same time, we're on a walk and a phone call comes in for her, right? And so like it's gonna happen, you know. And so I, I'm okay with it, and and she's okay with it. We know that's part of it. If she's got to make a call, we don't make each other feel bad about hey, you got to make a call. She, I know she's choosing that call. She's she's got to make that call, right? And so so we do that. Because we're again in different seasons of wherever wherever we're at, and you know it's it's balancing it is not pressuring the other person because because it could be next week, next month, and my business is is uh, is I got to be more involved in it right now. She's in a season of being more involved in, in in growth, and for me, I can be somewhat less involved because I'm being more mentally strategic in what I'm doing. Um, and, and and so that's that's just kind of the the trade off that we that we that we've added over the years. What is what does your time with your kids and your family look like? Do you have like a certain time every day that you guys shut off? Yeah, so he's usually home. He does school baseball, but like we just me and her, we flew down to uh, where were we at uh, Charleston this weekend and did a baseball tournament with him. We left down there Friday. We came back Sunday night, and so you know he's got practice two or three times with a team I coach. So I coach that team, the travel team, and then uh, he's got his school thing. Uh, like my daughter, she works here. So she works here and does our onboarding stuff. And she, uh, she came over to his game. So, you know, we, we try and be intentional about that time. Uh, you know, I'm going to leave here shortly and I'll be, I like to be there when he gets home, but I can make phone calls or do whatever it is. My schedule is set. So I use calendarly and then you, um, you can only set an appointment from nine to three Eastern time. And so that's good. And then you got 15 minutes or videos or things like that. And then if I need time off for something, so my, I have a paper schedule on my phone and a computer. So I usually look every month in advance and I'll calendar out any days that I need to be off so that I just don't have any appointments. Uh, and then I leave that before nine and after three period uh, for whether that's getting him to school or getting him uh, from school uh, or to deal with fires, right? Like it, every now and then there's a fire. I mean, you got to deal with it. Somebody's having a problem either in the morning. So that way it doesn't have to wait until the next day. So I leave that margin of time, but then, you know, I'm usually, I'm at home. We're either going to baseball practice or Bible study or out to dinner or whatever that is. And sometimes it's nothing. I, I just do nothing. So. So six hours a day, how much of that time now is in the business versus on the business? Well, you know, I love this stuff. And so when you say the business, we now have a holding company which has mortgage, title, um, commercial, residential real estate. These are all different businesses and the franchise business. And so there's we're setting up for something big. But at some point, for me, again, the job's not have a job. Somebody's over each of these things, and I just report to them, and they more so tell me what we're going to do or what we're going to work on. It doesn't mean somebody doesn't go down, you know, at some point, you know, we're out of salesperson, we need to bring in that or, you know, we don't have this person, but there's layers to all of it. And I just, I'm surrounded by amazing people. Like I, I feel really fortunate and I'm a big proponent of paying a few people really, really well can run a really large organization. Trying to run low scale, low capacity people and have a lot of them is a lot more to manage and a lot more turnover. Right. And so so you can get a lot more done with high capacity, but they can work from home. They work remote. They work you know, around the clock. They're a part of the vision. They know what we're building and all of that is there that they almost they do stuff. I don't even know is going on at this point, which is a it's a it's a beautiful, fun thing. But they know the vision of what we're going after and they're doing it. And they're they're just they're doing a phenomenal job. Hiring people that are high level can be tough. Sometimes it's I think it's tough for people to even know what high level looks like, especially if they've never been around many high level people. 
how, how do you compensate high level people? And what, what, what does it look like when you find somebody? Like, how do you know they're high level? Well, it depends on the situation of what it is. So if I have somebody running a corporate office, they're going to get a base plus a percentage of the profit. So you can do something like that. You can pay a high base salary, but everything is commission based on whatever problem they can solve. And so, you know, you're trying to figure that out. We usually will start someone in a mid grade and they can grow to that level of whatever it is, unless there's some track record or experience that we have. But for the most part, we'll bring in a handful of people and then the good ones, we just level them up quick and then we stay. So we don't have that turnover. I mean, I think, our, our payroll people were just shocked. There was a, what was a great resignation or whatever it was uh, that they were talking about. They said, Ryan, what are you doing? I said, what, what are you talking about? They said, you have a hundred percent retention. He said, that's unheard of. Nobody has that right now. And for me, I just went, all these people are too valuable. They love what we're doing. I, you know, I try and make it like if I was in their situation, what would I want life to look like? What do I want business to look like? And it doesn't mean it's not stressful. It doesn't mean it's not hard work. They, they know that they understand that, but if their kid is sick and they've got to go do it, they want to work from home. They want to go out of town. If my franchisee is in Florida and we're here or you drive over to Georgia on your family vacation, I don't care as long as the job's getting done. And they, and they like that. And that, I don't think that exists in the, in the business world that it's more micromanage and track everything you're doing and things like that, that it's grinding and get the most out of them. And I'm like, remember, it's not this chase. It's this chase is for everybody. We're building this for everybody. So, if they don't do it, the team actually corrects them. It's a, it's um, you know, they're like, they're not holding their weight. And so, and that, that levels them up. I don't even have to say anything because they know that they can't count on that person. And then it kind of just disseminates. So, so you're in the franchise business. So how, how should an agent know or a team leader know that it's time for them to become a broker? Is there a certain level of production, a certain level of experience when do you advise someone make the jump? Yeah, uh, um, I think of two things to answer that question. One is I have a rule and it's, it's called the 50X rule, right? And so the only way I'll do anything is usually, uh, it's, I do a win-win, meaning I win twice, uh, but I use the win-win tied with 50X, meaning if I do it and I can win twice 50 times, that's even better, right? But if I just win twice, then it's worth doing. So anyway, 50X, um, for them, they're doing deals and things like that. They're going to make a paycheck and then they're going to do something with that money. Right. And so the goal of doing that grind is to get enough money to get money working for you. Right. And so, you know, I use the equation of like a rental property. I can buy a rental property and make a thousand bucks a month, or I can buy another kind of rental property and Airbnb it out. Now that's going to take me a little bit more handholding and a little more time, but my return is going to be way greater. Right. And so, so, you know, there's two different investment types. It's the same with this is if you're putting your time in and you get a one-time return for your sale and it's a large amount of money, that's great. But only goal is to money, money, making money. So you want to figure out how long can you go without a paycheck? Now I say that hesitantly because if you're just staying on the rabbit, uh, the, the, what is it called? The hamster wheel of spending over and over, making a paycheck and spending it, you need to fix that, right? Independent of whether it's time to open a franchise or be your own broker. But, but when you fix that, you're going to realize, okay, even if I move over there, if I'm just still doing this pattern, there's no rate of return. There's no multiplier. We're looking for multiples, right? There, there's a saying somebody said, I know I'm a little bit all over the place with this, but um, they said that, you know how rich people get rich? They put a little bit of money in and get a big return. 
You know how rich people stay rich or poor people get rich by putting a little bit in and getting a big return. A little bit of crypto turns into a lot of bit of money, right? A Silicon Valley puts in a million, it turns to a hundred million, right? So you know how they keep their hundred million, you know how they keep their other money? Putting a lot of money in to get a little return. That's right. That's right. So that it's safer, right? You can't you have to think of business and life and time that way. So which means if you put in a little bit of time, you better get a lot of return. And at some point you then have to take that return. And then you'll get a little bit of return, but it keeps on growing and scaling. And so, so that's kind of the transition, how you manage your money. Um, and then looking at it of how risk tolerant are you to moving to getting a multiplier of time? Cause if you can't get a multiplier of time every day, you're running at a burn rate of your lifestyle. Your lifestyle is your burn rate to the return in which you're making lower your burn rate. So you can get money, making money. Now it may be open to franchise. It may be they buy rental properties. It may be that they buy stocks. It could be, they could invest it anywhere they want. I think when you're already in this industry, moving to running your own brokerage is a natural progression. So you can start building a team, you start adding agents, you figure out if you can grow it that way, then it makes sense to kind of peel out and move over. Some people just end up partnering with other people. So they end up doing it that way as well. So maybe they're not ready, but they partner with somebody else that is, because again, they're paying money out to another level when they could be getting a multiplier of two people's return. Yeah. And so reading between the lines there, becoming a brokerage owner, maybe you want to have a little bit saved up so you have a burn rate long enough to get through that initial process. But besides that, it sounds like the sooner you move over, the the more you're basically giving up a job for for an, an ownership. Well, you have a chance. You have a chance to not have a job anymore, right? Because if you're doing sales, you don't have a chance. And so, and it's fine. Some people are like, they're just wired. I don't want to count on anybody else. I want to do it. And other people are like, all right, this is great. I learned it, but we use a, a saying called Gitmo, good enough to move on. Once you've learned how to write a contract, do a deal, it's how quick can you get over to running a business? And then it's a levered factor. And in that levered factor, you're going to add in agents that are perfectly fine making a large amount of money doing sales because they like the freedom and it just fits the lifestyle that they want. So again, there's nothing wrong with it. That It's just different for every person to what they're looking for. Awesome. Ryan Finch, thank you so much. For sharing about your life, your business, uh, and and your faith, and, and all those things. So, guys, if you're out there listening, write something down that you learned. Whether it's Gitmo, you know, get enough to move on. Whether it's it's how he structured his business. Whether it's you learn that impact can be had now as opposed to later. You don't have to be frustrated later on. There's so much you can learn. Write it down. Share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable. Because freedom is acquired one action at a time. And if you take step step day by day, before you know it, you'll be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 